0: It's kind of nice to talk with a smaller group huh yeah I felt like our group our time management was really poor which I take responsibility for but it was really nice to talk so um, and it's different when we're together in the smaller group Uh, did anybody feel like there was nobody else in their circle that was like them then you cannot relate at all to whatever anybody else said in your small group no good okay did anybody hear something that was kind of surprising or refreshing or I'm so glad I feel much better now. Yeah. Good. We to do that again in a couple of months. Great. We'll do, we will. Let we do will. A do
1: every, time. every time. How are you doing?
0: Today? How you do What's happen What's happening? Right? Mm-hmm. <coughs> what's happening? Well, and that's that's some of the we talk we've talked before about action reflection as the method of learning. So that's the You've had a lot of action going on, and then the, the reflecting is then kind of the the learning gets solidified there. So that's it's so valuable, and small groups, as we know, are one of the most powerful units of transformation in any culture, in any place and time. The small group, yeah. And Margaret Mead, you know, has a great quote which I'm going to butcher now: "Around only small groups have ever really changed anything." Yeah. So um, I want to introduce you to Reverend Tom Harshman, who is a chaplain in health care and disciples of Christ, Christian, Mm -hmm. and uh, you've been doing spiritual care for 30 plus years. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So you're one of the rock stars that comes here.
2: Well, I'm just one of the graybeards. Gray be-
0: well, that's a rock star, you know. You and Mick Jagger, you know, are looking really... You didn't kill yourself so far, so you're doing great. As rock stars do, not as chaplains do. Let's make that clarification. Um, and before I turn it over to Tom, um, we need to have our moment of... Uh, wisdom and compassion uh, practice by having the group agreements read, yeah yeah We do this now every month when we get together in the middle of the morning to remind ourselves about how we want to treat each other and want to be treated. yeah.
3: Statements pay attention to what you are feeling and thinking, ask questions of self and other instead of jumping. ability.
0: Thank you. So for this next session, and we're starting late, so we'll go late. I don't want to chop up your time. Yeah, we'll we'll break for 12.30 at the latest. We'll see how much we go. And I'm going to just introduce you around the topic, and then I'm going to split over there. So we've asked Tom to come and speak with you about something related to the paramita of wisdom, and that is the practice of spiritual assessment. Spiritual assessment. Has this been any, in any of the literature that you've read so far? I don't know that it has. But I saw some nods. Some, some people have heard of it? You've heard of it? You've heard of it? Okay, great. It doesn't matter if you've heard of it or not, because Tom's going to introduce you <coughs> and help us understand what it is, why people do it, uh, the value, you know, some examples. This is being
4: recorded,
0: yeah? Mm -hmm. I see a red button that has a glow to it.
2: Well, thank you for um, allowing me to be here. I think my uh, biggest claim to fame now, I find out, is that uh, uh, Christina Fernandez has been my boss for the last two, two years, or actually longer, about four years, and I uh, retired in the summer and now apparently is with you all, which I find enviable. <laughs> She's spectacular. So I'll be channeling Christina for the next hour and a half, and uh, you can ask her follow-up questions if you need to next week. No, you be me. I'll be me. So th- um, before I talk, it'd be helpful for me if we could just kind of uh, go around, and if you could say your name and where you serve. That'll help me get a sense of what your context is and help me think through. Um, uh, it's usually easier if we just go in an order, or, but I'm fine with popcorn if that's better. So who wants to start? Is that, That'd be great. My name is Amy, and I'm serving in hospitals. Okay. Thank you. Amy, hospitals. Yeah. Perfect.
3: My name is Nadine, and I'm serving in a hospital as well.
2: Local, local, I should ask, uh, you in... Uh,
3: Actually, it's Desert Regional Medical Center in Palm Springs.
2: Oh, that's my hospital. And what hospital were you in? I'm hoping to be with Kaiser. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah.
1: Great. Okay. Good morning. I'm Alan, and I live in Portland, um, and I'm serving at the Portland VA as a chaplain there. Okay.
0: I'm Carolee, and I'm serving at Richmond Kaiser, and I'm also going to be training to do hospice with Suncrest. Yeah. Wonderful, thank you. Hi, I'm Joanne, and I am serving in a kind of independent capacity, supporting a woman at a board and care home. And then I'm also going to start with a hospice patient through a hospice program.
2: Wonderful.
1: My name is Dal, and I live in Santa Clara, and I volunteer at Elmwood Correctional Facility in Melpitas.
2: Okay.
3: Uh, I'm Anita, and I serve in a local jail.
1: Okay. I'm Phil and I'm starting at Stanford Hospital and I've also been serving at uh, Soledad Prison. All right.
2: My name is Adam and I'm volunteering with hospice in Berkeley and then applying to a CPE residency at Alta Bates for wow. next year. Carrie Buckner.
1: Oh great. That's the
2: that's a good program.
1: So I've heard. I'm Susan,
0: and um, I'm serving at UC Davis Medical Center in Sacramento.
2: Yes, lovely.
1: Hi, I'm Bob, and I serve with Zen Hospice Project at Laguna Honda, mm-hmm. and then I've just recently started also at Kaiser Marin in the chaplain's office. Okay. Yes, right.
2: People that we've trained.
3: <laughs> I'm Juliana, and I'm serving in a prison.
1: All right. Uh, I'm uh, Chuck, and I'm uh, serving at a hospice in uh, down in uh, Joshua Tree. Oh.
4: Okay. I'm Dylan, and I've been, uh, been serving as a San Francisco women's jail, and mm-hmm. going to be starting at my tree hospice in San Francisco as well.
0: Okay. Hi, my name is Cater, and my current chaplaincy is my private practice as a craniosacral practitioner, which is... Full spectrum from infants and newborns to people with terminal diagnoses, even dying, and everything in between. And I have done hospice work at Zen Hospice for over five years in the past.
2: All right.
0: Thank you. Um, I'm Beth. I serve at Laguna Honda in San Francisco. Okay.
1: I'm David. I live in Felton, and I'm serving downtown San Jose Jail.
3: Okay. I'm Joanna, and I volunteer at Elmwood Jail in Melpitas. Okay.
2: So, um, thank you for that. That's really helpful. Jennifer um, said that I've been doing this for quite a bit of time and have worked in almost every setting. The piece that I have only done a small amount is forensics. So I have only been in, I've been in psychiatric forensics, so in uh, kind of state mental hospitals, which are, people are in, w- incarcerated in. Um, uh, but So I'm, I'm curious, the, there's a number of you that are working in, in jail settings, so that's um, a piece of my experience that's more limited than others. Um, uh, Jennifer talked about the topic being spiritual assessment, and as I was amusing about spiritual assessment, really, uh, I think I want to would call this conscious spiritual assessment, because you, everybody in this room is doing spiritual assessment. You, every time you encounter someone, you're assessing what they need. What spiritual assessment in the kind of professional sense is, doing that consciously with a structure for a reason thoughtfully. So um, my invitation to you today is as you think about as as I talk and as we have conversation about spiritual assessment what I hope you muse on as you leave and you start to uh, notice and pay attention to in your practice is what is the way that you're assessing? What are the structures you have in your consciousness as you're encountering people that's guiding what kind of service you provide to them, because you're already doing that. It's intuitive. But the problem with intuition alone, not intuition mixed as a part of our assessment, because I think it needs to be a part of our assessment, but intuition alone is it's difficult to repeat it. It's difficult for us to understand what we're responding to in particular in that person we're tending to. What is it that we're picking up on that we're acting upon? because we're, every one of you is doing that. You're already assessing what the need is. But what we hope that you begin to develop as you uh, deepen your practice is a way of thinking about that systematically so that you can uh, repeat it or you can, you can uh, reflect on your own practice. So the analogy I like to use in is um, if I have a plant in my garden and I look at it over time or maybe a potted plant let's say a potted plant is easier if I have a potted plant and I look at it and I notice that its leaves are starting to turn pale why is that happening? what might be some of the reasons why that would be happening? too much water, too much water or maybe too little water right? so too much water or too little water what else? Light. too much light or too little light right? what's that? It's root-bound, it it needs a different context, right? Too much or too little nutrients. So the same kind of external symptom could mean several different kinds of things. And if I see yellow leaves and think, oh, more water, and that's that's my only tool, I may not be effectively attending to the needs of that plant. Same. So you get the (laughs) analogy. That's true with patients. If if people that we're serving, if we um, don't have a way of checking our assumptions or or thinking about what their need might be, that gives me um, directions, then I'm really applying the same response to every person. So one of the criticisms of spiritual assessment is, well, you're putting people in boxes. That's true. Hopefully broad boxes, and hopefully with a huge amount of humility so that I can change the box. Yes, we're putting people in boxes. But I would argue that if we don't do conscious spiritual assessment, we're putting everybody in a single box. And that box happens to be the box of my head without any reflection on it. So... The compelling reason to me that we assess what the needs are is that it helps me um, be able to attend to people's uniqueness, but in a framework that I can kind of check my own self. So I'm going to stop <coughs> talking for just a nanosecond. And what kind of thoughts come to mind just as we begin this conversation? What, is, what strikes you about what we're saying and what I'm saying? And does um, this is, kind of make sense? Yes. And where's the mic, I think? Oh, here we are. Thank you. Uh, Back behind you. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Uh,
3: So my immediate thought was terrible fear at putting people into boxes. Yes. But I do like the consciousness because then it's easier for me to bring the humility that if I need to change things. Right.
2: I I think that is one of the biggest fears because... um, You know, if if our assessment model is too complex, so more boxes, there's one model that's called the 7x7, 49 boxes. So, um, you know, if it's too complex, it'll take us a half an hour to figure out what box, and even then we'll be wrong. If it's too simple, I use one that has three boxes. It's reductionistic, right? But if I... (coughs) One of the things that helps me is that this is a way of tuning out some options so I can attempt a particular way of responding to that person. If that person doesn't respond the way I kind of expect them to, (laughs) then I put them in the wrong box. I've put them in the right box, but I'm responding ineffectively. Or I've put them in the right box, I'm responding effectively, and they're not in a place that is able to receive it. But that helps me then kind of think through what happens after I put them in the box with the acknowledgement that within the box, that person's unique way of expressing that and being that is where my intuition's going to come in because now I'm relating to them kind of in their uniqueness. You some warm water. You... Say that again? Warm for you in case you could... Oh, thank you. Thank you. Other thoughts or curiosities answer? Yeah.
4: Uh, even though what you said was
2: about us and our own self-reflection, I can just feel my mind being like, what are the boxes? Like, <laughs> what are the different water and sun things? i just going
1: solution-oriented. Of course,
2: of. yes. No, that's, uh, that's fair. I'll talk about that. <laughs> um, so let me say something general about that, and then we'll, we will get more specific. There are, um, v- you can imagine, a variety of different ways of assessing. There's a lovely book by a man named George Fichette, F-I-T-C-H-E-T-T. And it's been reprinted, But what and it's, it's older now. It's probably 10 or 12 years old. But what it did at the time was give the range of spiritual assessment tools that are out there. So I, I don't know that you need to read it. But just know that there are, he talks probably about two dozen different ways of thinking about humankind. <clears throat> and I think, so to the, shor- the short answer is, there are some kind of tested methodologies of, um, of assessment but that's also where I think it's important for each individual to see what do they, what do they get attracted to. So let me give an example. You've probably heard um, about Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's five styles of grief, right? Well, that's kind of an assessment model, mm-hmm. right? You could say, I'm encountering this person in grief. Where are they in their grief? So if I could assess, oh, they're at the stage of Bargaining. In their grieving process or they're at that style of anger and um, they're the style of depression you know so um, that's an assessment model a grief-based assessment model five five boxes <laughs> um, it I, I, I think in uh, Jennifer you kind of did some work around Buddhist Dharma and an assessment model related to um, attachment style so um, how how do I learn to attach to the most significant caregivers in my life in my first 18 or 24 months of life, well, that kind of hardware kind of lives with us throughout our own life. So the assessment model I use has three boxes, those three attachment styles. And you've done, historically, you did some work around how that, um, there's a corollary in Buddhist teaching. Um,
0: Just types of suffering, you know, there's attachment, Ambivalence or aversion. So, you know, what kind of suffering is this? Is this somebody pushing something away? Are they unengaged, or are they, you know, overly attached and kind of in it? So that's just that's
2: the Buddhist. So that so look look how simple that was, right? What's the type of? I didn't, I didn't make it. Up. Well, you, you summarized it beautifully. <laughs> what's the type of atta- Like, what's the style of attachment, or Another way, another assessment would be, what's the nature of their attachment? What, what, is this, where, what is the nature of their suffering? Or what is the style of the suffering is what I think Jennifer's talking about. Um, another way of thinking about, so I'm going to toss out kind of a variety of different ways of thinking about assessment and then let's dig into what you're interested in. Another way of thinking about assessment is to imagine a continuum. And on one end of this continuum is um, the spiritual resources a person has available to them to address their healing or health need or crisis at this point. At the other end of the continuum is distress. What's the spiritual distress that they experience? How is this illness distressing And kind of in the middle of the continuum is what's their need? What would I understand as their spiritual need? So that where is the person at any given time? Where are they on this continuum between their distress to the point that their spiritual needs are interrupting their ability to heal? So an example would be, I'm so overwhelmed with grief that I can't get to the pharmacy to get, medication to treat my diabetes in the middle might be you know my grief interrupts my life at times it makes my sense of enjoyment at at times uh, more diminished Um, it distracts me at times from maybe how well I eat if I have diabetes for instance Uh, it, it sometimes I don't care so I go ahead and let my blood sugars get out of control. Most of my grief kind of, it's not making it, a, it's not, you know, it's not, I'm not in distress, but I'm, I've got need. I could, If I had more sense of um, healing around my grief, I might be able to manage my health better. Uh, and on the end of a spiritual resource, it's like my spiritual practice grounds me very deeply in what I need to do to attend to my body's needs. It's a resource that helps clarify what it is that I need to do, that helps motivate me to maintain the kinds of practices that are healthy for me. So that would be another assessment. And um, so let me stop. I can talk without stopping for a long time. So what thoughts do you have just about those couple of things that I've tossed out? A grief model, an attachment model, I could dig into that a little bit, or this continuum idea? Yes. Um, I'm, yeah,
1: that's right. Thank
2: you. Sure.
0: <laughs> I, I'm gobbling this up. <laughs> um, partly... Just because of the kind of work I've done in the world that involved assessment, totally different type of work. But um, I, um, I'm just wondering what's going on in my head. Is like, oh, do you do this overtly? Like, do you interview the patient, or are you doing this, you know, in your mind by just observing them? That's my, you know, where I'm going next.
2: Yes, yeah. So um, for me, uh, I think of it like uh, a plowing a field. So I have, I've plowed the field in my brain or in my consciousness. When I go in and meet somebody, my spiritual assessment model, the one I rely most heavily on, notice I didn't say the only one I rely on, but the one I rely on, I've I've plowed the field in my brain. So when the rain of whatever the patient says to me comes into me, it goes into different furrows. It kind of naturally flows into that. And in time, as you use, I don't interview. Um, questions, I think you may have talked about this, but every time I ask a question of a patient, I, uh, I demand that they do something for me. I'm demanding something from them if I ask a question. So I'm going to be very cautious about asking questions. Because that's a... Yeah. So a question from a chaplain with all of our authority, a question is a demand. I exact a price from them. This is, this is a person who has, is in health uh, some kind of health or personal crisis. And for me to ask a question, I exact a price. They have to think of the answer. They have to worry that my, their answer is going to have some reaction inside of me. Am I going to get the answer right or wrong if I'm the patient? This powerful person, am I going to be wrong? Am I going to say something that's going to upset them? So... Uh, We ask questions all the time, but we should ask questions with the consciousness that it's costly. So the more we can avoid questions and make uh, equanimous, neutral statements that a person can react to, that's the skill. So instead of saying, are you feeling sad? How can I say, you seem a bit sad. I'm going to get the same answer, right? Or well, actually, I'm going to get a better answer because instead of saying someone saying no or yes, which doesn't really get me anyplace, <laughs> I'm going to get, well, not really sad, but disappointed. Yes, really sad. Um, well, no, not sad at all, said with a very angry voice, <laughs> which gives me the information of, oh, they're not sad, they're mad. So, um this is a little bit of a tangent, but um, so i 'll get back to your curiosity. When I really want to be very, very thoughtful, if I have to ask a question, it's because there's no other way to get to what i'm asked what, I, what i'm trying to understand. So how do we say these kind of reflective statements? so as those refl- as the response to those reflective statements come in as I h- hear them, i'm starting to kind of like put them into the right furrow in my brain that fits with whatever assessment model. Oh, that would be information that would say, if I'm using a grief assessment model, that would be information that said they might be in the style of discouragement or depression, as Kubler-Ross talked about it. But, um, or, no, no, that, that information would say they're probably in the kind of numb state style. You know, That's what the, So as this information starts to collect in the furrow... I start to then shift and like into the most kind of the most relevant part of spiritual assessment is once I start to get an idea of what the need is, how do I respond? So that's the beautiful thing about assessment, and I, I will go deeper into that in a minute. But the idea about assessment is I want, and some assessment I want to know how to respond. So an assessment should guide a different response out of me. If I assess that a person's in the style of numbness in their grief, I should respond very differently to them than if I assess that a person's in the bargaining style of grief, for example. Right? That's, that's why I assess, is to shape an appropriate response. Well, that's a bunch of, that's a lot of words (laughs) coming out of Tom's mouth. (laughs) Thanks.
0: Um, One of our sessions, we talked about the difference, or what is the difference between um, psychology and, yeah, and so this sounds like a lot, this sounds very psychological.
3: So is that right
2: it... um, Yes and no um, <clears throat> the psych- The amount of psychology is based on what 's the assessment model I choose so i can have i 'm a Christian, so I could have an assessment model that 's com- completely theologically based, not at all about someone 's psychology, which is the way they kind of function, but that are they so an example would be do they for a Christian? Do they see themselves in a state of grace at this moment? Do they see themselves in a state of lack of faith at this moment? Like that. So to go back to uh this uh a more Buddhist approach would be what is the nature of their suffering or what is the the style of uh their attachment? So that could be that's a very spiritual assessment. Uh, I think uh that uh, modern psychology has given us some um, helpful clues, so I would say in this attachment theory, that's a psychological approach, right? An attachment is it's uh, how I attach with my primary caregiver. That's a psychological way of thinking, so it's more thera- therapeutic in that way. But the way I think about it is um, the three styles of attachment tell me that a person... Um, their, that their, their wound is that they feel disconnected from people or their wound is that they don't feel they can focus on something and make progress in their lives um, or, their, or their wound is such that they feel lesser than others. So those are spiritual wounds as opposed to psychology. So I, I want to address a different question I think you're asking too, is what's the difference between pastoral or spiritual care and spiritual counseling. So um, when I walk into a room, I don't necessarily know what I'm going to do when I get in there. But um, it may be that I'm going to do spiritual caregiving, which means I am simply going to reflect back to them what they're saying to me. In my mind, I do not have a different place I think they should go. I don't have a different place. I just... I see my role as being a mirror to their experience. I'm, I don't think they need to change in any way. I don't think they need to be in a different place. I don't think there's a more healing place for them to be. None of that. It's, I am here to be a, a, a warm, compassionate presence, presence to you. Witnessing. Yeah, I, witnessing is a great way. I'm going to witness your experience. Um pastoral and that's good for 10-15 minutes maybe longer even but that may not be their need right so if I assess that their need is not just that container but that actually it would be from my professional perspective it would be a better place for them to have more awareness of this dimension of what they're sharing to me or more healing around this dimension of what they're sharing with me, now I'm going to shift into pastoral counseling. Because what I'm doing in that is I'm thinking, oh, there is a different place that would be a better place for them to be, maybe. And either we're going to either get there or not get there. I don't have control over that. And I certainly don't have the level of arrogance to think that I'm, I'm right, that it would be better. But I do want to say, as a professional, I want to try and see whether that opens up some doors for them. If I were to say, you know, I'm conscious that as you talk to me, you're smiling, but your words sound angry. Are you aware? Uh, you know, I, I wouldn't say, are you aware of that? It's a question. It Cost me, right? I would just pause. I'm conscious that you're talking with me and your words are. Um, your your face appears. You're smiling, and yet your words have this um, angry tone to them. So that is counseling, because I think them looking at that. See, I'm directing it now. Now I'm now I'm not just witnessing. I'm witness by choosing one piece to witness. I'm now directing, and we do that too. So a very basic assessment. Is just that, is the need for this person at this moment, pastoral care, pure, warm, equanimous, honest witness, reflection? Or is there a need to focus in on a piece of what they're telling me to help them wonder about a different way of being or a different perspective on that thing? That's, does that, that's spiritual assessment, <laughs> right? I'm making that assessment. We probably do it intuitively, right? I bet you could think back in your own practice already. The people that you knew that all they needed from you was that warm, equanimous written rit- scene. And then with others, there was something inside you that said, ooh, that, there's something about that that would really be good for us to maybe talk a little bit more about that little piece, and you kind of subtly are curious about it or reflect on it, and they move into a different place with it, and they discover something about themselves. That, you just made an assessment. It was intuitive, but, but you, you just made an assessment when you made that. Does that kind of respond to what you
3: do? Do you ask for permission when you move into the counseling space?
2: um sometimes overtly so um i I, let me be clearer on the counseling so it's not therapy i don't i it's not therapy therapy in my mind is the relationship that happens and just to put a number on it i don't do counseling for more than three times with anybody that i encounter in a profession. i do not have those skills I don't know how to build that relationship and build the goals, in a sense. I'll be attentive to someone, and if it's a long-term situation, I'll have many, many I- interactions. But I'm not a therapist. Um, so, but I am counseling in the sense of this focus. Um, sometimes it's overt. Sometimes I might say, I'm curious about something that I would, I'd like to focus on, but I'm wondering if that's interesting to you right now. Um, most of the time, that's a question, right? <laughs> most of the time, I'm going to dabble lightly and, um, and see how they respond to that. And if they seem curious, then I'm going to engage it. Some of it's based on, back to the topic of the day, an assessment, right? So let me say something about my assessment model. And the one that I play most often with. Because I think it kind of highlights some of this. I live in San Francisco. We have challenges in parking. As you can (laughs) well imagine. Um, I park my Volkswagen on the street and I get a ticket. And I walk out to... um, my Volkswagen that has a ticket, and I look at it and I go, those damn cops. Don't they have anything better to do in San Francisco with all the problems than give me a ticket? I just parked in this zone for a little bit of time. My sticker, okay. Uh, Yes, it's wrong, but really? Really? That's one box. I'm a different person. I park in that same spot and I walk out to my car and pull the ticket off the windshield and I think, huh, a ticket. Now, I wonder what this is designed to teach me. You know, should I learn to be less attached to my money? Should I really be more responsible about looking at the laws? Like, what should I learn from this? Is this even my car? (laughs) Those are the extreme versions. (laughs) Was this somebody else's ticket? Should I really be putting it on somebody else's? Yeah. So that's a second box. The third box is: I I go out to my car, I look at the ticket, and I go, "I'm so stupid." You know, I knew not to do this, and now it's going to hurt my family's finances to have to pay this ticket, and I wasted that police officer's time, where they could be spending on something so much more important than giving a ticket. Right. So that's the third box. There's theory and all behind this, but to kind of go back to your response, when I encounter the first person that is, you know, don't they have better time to do with this, that kind of, that tone? My pastoral response should be stronger. If I come in soft and warm and fuzzy, they're not going to be able to engage me. Like, they're going to be nice to me, but they're going to kind of blow me off. And I'm not going to be able to be a helpful presence. So my response is going to be more full-throated. And if I notice something, I'm not going to ask permission. They'll tell me no. So what I'm going to do is say, I'm really aware of this and let it sit there. And then because probably what they're going to do is engage me. That's, that's how they connect. The second person is more likely going to get a question. Because I'm more likely to say, I'm I'm really curious about this. Because guess what? That second person loves the curiosity. They're going to want to dive in, going to talk about it. We're going to pick it all apart. At one point, they're going to realize they have 18 answers. And I'm going to say, you know, it might be interesting for you if you chose one of those answers. What's your top three? And they're going to come down to three, and then in the next interaction, they're going to expand that to five again. And I'm going to say, you just expanded that to five. Isn't that interesting? What's your top two? So that's going to be more effective for them. In the third style of person, I am going to try to make myself as tiny as possible and ask them to tell me a story of their experience. Can you tell me a little bit about that? How do you experience that? So I'm not at all going to come with this strength. I'm going to try to be as small and listening as humanly possible. So your assessment style in its best, in, in its best use starts to guide you. So let's kind of play with this a little longer. Let's say I say this patient I'm working with they're in that, in that second box. They want to have the curious conversation. And I started interacting with them, and I realized, oh, that's, this isn't going anyplace. Like, they're not really that curious. They're a little testy with me and kind of bored with me. So one thought is, well, I put them in the wrong box. No harm, no foul. I just asked a few curiosity questions. Let me shift the way I'm interacting, become a little bigger, be a little bit more kind of engaged in that big, bigger way and see how that works. And maybe that will work. Or I put them in the right box. My way of interacting, maybe I didn't ask enough questions. Maybe I kind of started getting, tell me your story-ish. And that didn't work. Well, if they're in the middle box, what my assessment model tells me to do is to engage in that curious way. So maybe I didn't stay true to that style that I'd thought through ahead of time. There's reason why I want to be questioning with them because my model's based on theory and all, right? So maybe I didn't stay true. Can I stay? Can I go back to staying true? It okay? Questions again. That's right. Don't don't get big. Stay with the questions. So my assessment now has not only taught me how to do it, but it's given me a chance to review my own practice in the middle of the interaction and to say, oh, that's right, middle box, questions. Stay with the questions. Let's say both of those don't work. Well, another option is that they're just not in a place. I might be right in my assessment. I might be really staying true to kind of what to do with that assessment, but they're not in a place to engage that. Okay, that's fine. This is not about forcing people to do stuff, but it is about having a method to reflect on how I'm interacting initially and in the moment being able to change course being able to remember when I go back to them oh you know this worked really effectively with them let me start there next time and so let me i'm going to say one more thing and then back to <laughs> let's have some interaction A, an assessment model in my judgment should never be W- done once and always. I should never put a person in a box and decide they're always going to be in that box. Right? This is in the moment. People have power and authority and autonomy, <laughs> and I should be always curious about how this person is interacting with me in this present moment. So they don't go in a box and stay in a box forever, for all time and eternity. I think that's an inappropriate way to use an assessment model. Now, a person can train me. If eight times they end up in this box, well, likely they really are more comfortable in this box. Okay, so I'm going to lean toward that. I want to be conscious that I'm leaning toward that so I don't miss information that they're telling me otherwise. But it's a very, uh, it should never be a one and done kind of thing. I I should not assess someone and decide this is how they are always because I'm going to see them for 15 minutes out of their life. How do I know who they are? Okay, let me pause. What other thoughts or questions?
1: It feels to me like what you're, kind of what you're doing is you're matching their, like, like the first bucket is kind of angry, and you're matching that with, with assertiveness, and the second one is exploring, and you're matching that with curiosity, yeah. and the third one is self-diminishment, and you're matching that with, with a smaller presence, an open presence. Is yes. that is that a... Yeah, And that,
2: and thing? that's really... Actually, that's a really nice way of saying, in general, what spiritual assessment is. The purpose of assessment is not so that I can figure them out. The purpose of assessment is to figure out how I need to be different to serve their needs. Like... So how does that serve them? Like what's,
1: you know, like a little mechanism or something? So that's,
2: (laughs) so that goes back to the theory, like, um, so in my little Volkswagen theory, right? The first person struggle is that they, um, um, they desire, their deepest desire is to be connected with people. That's their deepest, that's their, this core value for them in that first thought is to be, but paradoxically, paradoxically, their style gets in the way because what are they doing? They're kind of always blaming somebody else. So it's really hard to build these convivial relationships when you're saying, well, if you'd be that way, then I could be in better relation. If you'd be that way, I could be, you know, that's their style. So their style undermines their core get their achieving of their core value, and so what the theory says is one way to engage that is to help them see their role in any kind of estrangement that it 's actually empowering for them to see oh oh i 'm doing this that 's what 's making it hard for me to to get what I want most out of life so that 's the theory that 's behind it, so what I want to embody then is the chaplain is the person that will focus them they're going to so they'll say that first Volkswagen person I happen to know the style quite familiarly um, they're going to say my kids haven't visited me in six months you know they they have not they are I raised them with manners and and the cultures damaged that they, they're, they're, they're just they, 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 they. Inside, what that person is also saying is, I really wish my kids would visit me. I want that relationship. But look what they're doing. Or they'll say, those nurses, those nurses are mean, you know. Well, yes, I'm grumpy. The nurses aren't nice to me. Right? They're not seeing what, what they how they're participating in that process. So they're not going to be able to rebuild those relationships without a sense, of con- that, a, a sense of what they do to contribute. So if I went in and said to that person, well, it's, you know, you're blaming your kids. Maybe you should look at what you're doing. Well, the conversation's going to be over, <laughs> right? But if I said to them, i 'm aware that, as you tell me about this story, that you really see very quite clearly what your kids are doing that isn 't co- connective i 'm wondering what your part of the dance is, or what 's your ten percent like i don't have ten percent it's them blah blah blah, well, I get it, but relationships are mutual, you know, see how casually you do it yeah but you, uh, you know i'm not asking to them to tell me the story i 'm saying, yeah, no relationships are mutual, so what's your 10%? Okay, yeah, 90% them, but what's your 10%? I want to hear your 10%. See how kind of strong that is? Mm -hmm. But if they see what their 10% is, that's revelatory. Because they have control over that. And the empowerment that comes from being able to say, well, I could stop telling them how long it's been since they saw me the last time. I could start with saying, I'm so happy that you're visiting me. I could do that. So that's that one box. But the idea, it's kind of built on a psychological theory about attachment, but then the core spiritual value being this connectiveness. The other two have the same kind of, kind of theory behind them. But and, and that's kind of your charge as you develop in this pr- profession is what is it, how do I think about how people function? What, like, I don't think it's best to go to books and have somebody else tell you what it is. But how do I think about it? How do I think I function? Like, what drives me? What are the core things that drive how I interact with other people? What are my biases? What are, you know? And so that I can start to develop a, an assessment tool kind of by being observant of who I am and how do I think people work in the world? What's my... What's my, it's unconscious because we all have it. But what do I think? Like, what is the assessment I'm currently making on folks? Because you are currently making these assessments. So as you're, that's, that's again, my charge is how do you, how do, can you be observant about that over the next few weeks so that you start to discover what are the things that I'm intuitively reacting to? Because you're doing it. You're good at this. You're already reacting to people. But what is it that I'm paying attention to? Am I paying attention to the tone of their voice? Do I pay attention to their words? Am I paying attention more to relationships or more to their internal dynamics? Like, what do I, when I encounter someone in my place of ministry, what do I listen for? Do I listen for uh, re- religious words? Is that where my assessment is. Do I listen for how they talk about their relationships with loved ones? So it's a relational assessment. Do I listen to their kind of psychodynamics? So more of an internal psych- psychological assessment. What am I already doing? And then you build on it. Okay, so there's there a theory behind that? Do I, am I more kind of Freudian? <laughs> Do I think this all happened when they were one? you know or am i more like the biology uh, you know or do i think this is really about their attachments how the, what the nature of their suffering is or do i am i listening for their relationship with the deity so you are doing this already my invitation is make it conscious and then as you make it conscious, you can start to understand what's my dharma behind that? What's my theology behind that? What's the psychology I think of behind that? And you backfill that. It's <laughs> a big thing. And guess what? You've got 30 years to do it in. You do not need to figure this out tomorrow. Because that's the good news. You are already doing it. And so I really don't recommend people getting anxious and diving into books trying to figure this out because you really have time to figure it out. You're doing good work. All this, all spiritual assessment about is being able to hone your practice. You're just honing it. You're being able to figure out what do I pay attention to and then what does what I pay attention to teach me about what I need to learn? Okay, so I don't have to have a comprehensive system like I'm describing. I got that after 20 years in ministry. It took me a while. (laughs) So give yourself time. Give yourself time. Because you're already doing it, and just the key is to that self-consciousness of what do I pay attention to? And then you can start to ask yourself: I wonder why I pay attention to that. I wonder why the relational dynamics they tell me about is what I tend to pay most attention to. Or I wonder why grief is what comes to my mind as the thing I'm paying attention to. Maybe it'd
0: be good to flush out the different kinds
2: of things that we pay attention to. Say that one more time. Let's flush
0: out some more of those. Okay.
2: That's great. Yeah. So, as think, think about a, a significant encounter you had in the last month. A, a encounter. A, a, a you're you're in ministry with somebody, and a, a, a memorable interaction you had with them in the last month or two. You know, think about think So, put that kind of put that in your bag and ask ask you some questions about. It. What were two things that they said or did that you noticed? Do you want us to share it? Yeah, if you have an idea, because then I can engage you on it if that's okay. Yeah.
4: Okay. So as you're as you're explaining these dynamics, I think um, serving in prisons is is, is so um, you know where you're working with a group. You don't know what really what's what's going on. Yeah. So what I started to do is is doing check-ins. Okay. And um, one by one, everyone says how they're doing and how and what they like to get from the ninety minutes to, an, to two hour period that we have together. Okay. And I notice that when I when we begin that there's of course there's a variety of expressions of how people are doing. Mm-hmm. And uh, to answer your question. Um, I, I recall as we were checking, um, we got to this one uh, woman, young woman, uh, probably mid-twenties. Um, you know, her turn came and she stayed silent and then suddenly she said, I, I feel broken. The person before her said, oh, I'm having a, ni- a great time, I'm leaving and... A week or so. Mm-hmm. So you have a right there. You have a uh, very, very different expression of, mm-hmm. of of their reality. So that's that was one thing that really caught my attention. Within a group of yes. about eleven, and then as as, as we were finishing the session, uh, we were all leaving, and she was the last one, to, the last one to exit. Mm-hmm. And uh, as she was exiting, walking through the door, she just. One moment just turned back and said enjoy the weather hmm. now there are no windows in the prison there are no imagine just walls and and, and rooms and mm-hmm. really light bright lights and I, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of still turning that because it's it's just so momentary
2: but it's so significant you noticed it right So, and I think, I I would venture to say, you've made some meaning out of that. Mm. You've made a little touch of meaning. What's your gut say when she said, enjoy the weather? What what did your gut say that was being communicated to you in that moment?
4: I I think for me, it it was painful.
2: She was, okay, so... This is great. <laughs> do you mind me playing with this no, a bit? please do. Yeah. So two things. You've made an assessment of her emotional state. It, it, it was a, a, a statement, enjoy the weather, and you heard her pain in that. So all, all of a sudden what you've done is you've made an assessment. Out of all the different feelings that are available, pain is what you noticed. The other thing you did is, um, I, I'll venture to say, is that you... Uh, interpreted why she was probably feeling pain. Did you?
4: I hadn't gotten, I hadn't gotten got to got that it. point yet, but <laughs> okay. but eventually I felt like uh, in reflecting on it. Yes. I felt like I, I did get some sense.
2: What you said to me that made me think you made some meaning is you talked about how she doesn't get to see weather.
4: Yes, that happened. Um, that happened within... Well, actually, it happened walking out of the prison. That I was just like... When I walked out into the reality of my life, which is I can just walk out and enjoy the weather. It yeah. became apparent.
2: So there you had those two things. You made two assessments. One was unconscious. One was um, conscious in terms of the pain. If she, if you had decided that that statement was not about pain, and you had assessed... So, so, before I ask that, um, if the... When, when someone expresses pain to you, what does that teach you that a chaplain... How should a chaplain best respond to someone with pain? What, if you were going to have an interaction with her, what should a chaplain say?
4: Hmm. Um, from very little experience, I, I think I would ask... Uh, can you repeat the question you just asked?
2: Yeah, so um, see how costly questions are? Yeah. I, I, I mean, it's hard, right? Because you're trying to think, what's, ta- what's the answer that's right? Mm. This is why we have to be very conscious with questions. So um, I, if it's all right, I'll ask you the question Please. again. Yeah. So the question is, when someone expresses pain, you've assessed their pain, you've picked up on their pain, What what's a... a, a a loving spiritual response to that like mm. what's the response a chaplain might make might make to pain
3: hmm.
4: well first I think that I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily go into determining that it's if the person uh, indicated um, implicitly to me, that it that it, there's something painful, I wouldn't dart into that first. I think mm-hmm. I would assess that. Um,
2: so you'd want to you'd want to verify it. Yes. Right. Exactly. I'm so that she vaguely says, um, "Enjoy the <laughs> <She> <laughs> enjoy with the a smile." You know? Yeah, it's, it's exactly. <laughs> so enjoy, So you might say that sounds painful. I I, hey. I hear a bit of pain in that. So um, I'm one response that an emotional assessment is, is to verify it hmm. by reflecting back your intuition about what she was trying to say, right? So she says, um, enjoy the weather. Um, if you wanted to engage it as a chaplain, because she's walking out the door, she chose to do it then, but you might say, it sounds painful, you sound painful hmm. to say that. That might start a conversation. She might say, I'm not pained. I was just telling you enjoy the weather. Okay, we move on. Or she might say, yeah, I never see weather. Mm. And then you could say, well, now it sounds like you've got pain and a little bit of anger in that. Mm. And you stop. And see how the interaction is going. So out of all – so a group is a whole other thing because you can kind of assess the person of the group. But with this one statement – as she's walking out the door, you made an assessment on her emotional state. So that tells me one of the ways that you approach your chaplaincy is to assess a person's emotional state. And assessing their emotional state, right or wrong, assessing their emotional state leads to some kind of response. So I don't think you're probably alone. I imagine many of you in the room, one of your, assessment, your initial assessments is, Out of the five main emotions that people have, which one are they having in this moment? You, you do it intuitive. I mean, we're caregivers. We kind, we kind of, it seeps into us, and we make an assessment, and that assessment leads to something.
0: What about thinking at the same time? Well, this person's so young; she's obviously a victim of. I'm really
2: mad that she's here, too, and can't see the weather. That's a, a, that's a completely different assessment, right? So that's other what contrast. Just it, absolutely. So one assessment, that's why I was asking about the meaning you made out of it. One assessment that you made, your first one, was on the emotion, and you, res, and you responded or could respond as a chaplain to this feeling tone that you've picked up on. Another or is... Your co-leader yeah. you could
0: see it different
2: completely differently and they could see it as a uh, uh, assess that she's trying to communicate her <coughs> her experience or her meaning and and now she could be saying i'm so mad that i'm that the system has stuck me where i can't see the weather or she could be saying i'm so grief filled that i can't see the but okay to go with what jennifer's saying I'm now assessing that if it's Jennifer, she's mad at the system. So I'm doing a feeling assessment, but I'm also doing a meaning assessment. Now let's go back to the Volkswagens. What do I do when someone's mad and blaming the system? I want to be strong. It guides my response. But you did both of those assessments, one immediately when you picked up on her feeling, and one as you were walking out of the uh, of the prison and you, or the facility and you experienced the weather. So you did two assessments. Um, those two assessments could guide how you respond pastorally. If you go with the feeling assessment, you do with the feeling reflection, assessment, and you kind of, or a, a, um, verification, and you kind of dive into that. If you go with the meaning, you, next time you see her, you say, I was thinking about what you said to me as you left the group and noticed that, um, that you wished me, uh, you, you invited me to enjoy the weather. Mm-hmm. And then you stop talking because you're not going to ask a question. You stop talking and you see what she does with that. And she says, yeah, I felt warm. I, I, I felt uh, glad that you listened to me when I said I was really struggling. Um, and I wanted, to, I wanted you to enjoy something. Or she says, I'm really grief-stricken that in this place I don't get to see weather. But now your pastoral relationship is going in that, that direction. So these little tiny things that we encounter, you are making an assessment. What we're not yet doing, I mean, it, it, part of the professional development is kind of systematizing that. So, like, you made the assessment, um, and and then I'm going to let you off the hook, (laughs) but you made the assessment that she was feeling sad, right? Mm -hmm. Well, that means, I think, that you have, and as we have, categories in our brain. So, what are the big categories of feelings? So, you've probably talked about this, you know, okay, five big categories of feelings. Mad, sad, glad, scared, I'm going to miss it, happy. Mad, scared, mad, sad, glad. No, that's happy. Mad, sad, glad. I can't think the five. Fearful, hurt, hurt. Well, that's interesting. So, I, um, five different kind of big categories of feeling. I can be hurt. I can be sad. I can be glad. I can be mad, and I can be scared. Now I'm not twisting. <laughs> those are those five big, right? That's an assessment model. That's an assessment model. There's, Yeah. But he
4: said that,
1: didn't you say that she's getting out? That was the other That's person. No, yeah. Oh, sorry. That was sorry. the one
2: next I to her. Okay. So can I, let me just kind of flesh out a a bit. Just even in, even in noticing the feeling, it's a start of an assessment model. If you walk out of here and think, I think there are five categories of feelings. I wonder what people around me are which of those categories they're in? Because there's a different response to each of those feelings. I'm not going to respond to someone who says, I'm getting out in tomorrow. Yahoo! The same way I'm going to respond to someone who's weeping. I will not. I'm going to respond differently. So that simple assessment of which of these five main categories of feelings, mad, sad, glad, scared, and hurt, am I going to listen for? That's an assessment model. And then you start thinking... As a chaplain, what's the appropriate way to respond to someone who expresses hurt? As a chaplain, what's the most effective way to respond to someone who expresses anger? So let me free you up. Thank you. <laughs> but now I'm going to ask you to kind of go back to your own you know, that, your own encounter. What was the significant encounter that you had? Did anybody... Um, in uh, probably you all had a feeling tone connection because that's that's kind of where we generally go. But so did anybody else notice something else about their encounter that we might play with in the same kind of way?
1: Well, in uh, a heavy emotional state of any one of these, there could be a tendency, like in the context of working in a jail, that somebody kind of hijacks the energy, right. Like a uh, really um, strong alpha personality. I had the experience, and, and it's a story of grave injustice. Uh huh. And, and a person, African American guy, and, but it was that every week. Yeah. And I really felt powerless. I mean, yeah. I, I <laughs> completely inadequate on how to, to, to meet it. Yeah. And, and I mean, the best I could do would, would, would be to allow space. Sure. But I'm only there for an hour, and, and it would hijack. You know, and I don't use that word lightly. Yeah, you know? I mean, because I really liked the guy, and really felt it, and you know, I believe people, and uh, but at the same time, you know, there's it's just such a heavy space. Nobody's got room for their feelings or anything.
2: Well, you are—you're uh, so right, and and I, uh, I and um, I want to point out a subtle assessment you have. You said Alpha. He's an Alpha, right? Which means you think there's a Beta. Or there's something in contrast to an alpha person. I mean, alpha personality being powerful and controlling, I would say, right? Just a power model. Yeah, exactly. Power exactly. Like, like, that's an assessment. You made the assessment A, that he's alpha, so he has some power. B, that he hijacks, which means in group settings he expresses that power. So you're also, to your point, you're also assessing, I would venture to say, who in that setting doesn't have power, oh, yeah. right? Your pastoral response to a person with power is probably going to be different than your pastoral response to a person without power. Now, you're saying, I don't know that yet. I don't know what the pastoral response is. I want to I expand my skills around, well, when you encounter a person with power, what are my options as a person that's there for only an hour? And the flip side of that is when I experience someone with less power, what are my pastoral options? So I think it's fair to say that you're still exploring, now given that I assess power, you're still exploring what the what the options are as a chaplain. Great. That's what we should be doing. But you see how intuitive it is you picked up. He's got power and that's having an impact. You're also meaning that there's people without power and that's having an impact. And so the question that you that you might want to explore in your ongoing practices, okay, uh, that's an assessment. What are the pastoral responses that are available? And how can I grow in that? Like what have, what have people said about the appropriate ways of, Engaging those that experience their power, and that experience it through the lens of grave injustice. What's the theory there is around people who don't experience their power, and how do I most effectively respond to what their spiritual need is? Because it's probably different than the person that experiences their empowerment. Does that makes yeah. that make sense? So, Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> a f- kind of a family systems. System. We might talk about it as a system. So in a system, another assessment model is to think of a system. Like that the system has its own life. You're kind of talking about this too when you talk about going around the circle, right? In a system, some people take up more space. Other people take less space. What's the payoff for those that don't take as much space? What's the payoff for those that do take more space? How do the two impact one another? That's an assessment. So you, so you can go into a group and assess it as a group, but you could also encounter someone and say, oh, your role in your family system has always been the caretaker. And yet now you're in the hospital. I assess that your role is really being challenged right now. Like that—that—that really, what you're suffering is right now is that the role that you're comfortable with in a system is being totally thwarted by your medical condition right now. Exactly right, right. How can I be the receiver of care, moms and CEOs? Right. How can I be the receiver of care when I give care? In the hospitals, have you ever had a nurse, right, as, a, as your patient? They're used to this other. So that's an assessment, right? It's a role assessment. How does what I've been taught is my best role or my familiar role? How is that being challenged by my current crisis? And therefore, given that, how do I, how do I interact differently as a chaplain? That's another assessment. It's a, a systems perspective, Sessa. Yeah? Just out of curiosity. So are there like
1: infinite numbers of assessments?
3: Yes. You know, like, just like as you've described.
1: Yeah, so the question
2: is, are there infinite number of assessments? Well, probably, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and that's why, to go back to where I started, find something simple that um, fits with what you're already doing. So if I were to counsel you, you're already thinking in terms of power dynamics. Run with that for now. By thinking, if you, you're already thinking about what the feeling sense is. Run with that. Start where you are. Because what you'll do, at least in my experience, what I've done, is I started, not surprisingly because my mother died when I was a kid, but I started with a grief model as my assessment. Mm, isn't this a hint as to where we start with our... Uh, right, Our, we start with what we probably experience. Right, so I started with a grief model, Kubler Ross's styles of grief. That really worked for me for a very long time, and I think I was a very effective pastoral caregiver, particularly with people who were in grief. Then it became inadequate. And I thought, I need something else because I'm not dealing with feelings as effectively as I think I could. Those categories are more thinking categories. And, and they're, yes, everybody's going through grief, but not acutely. <laughs> so then I started saying, okay, I want to know more about feelings. I was in therapy at the time. Maybe that was an influencer. Let me l- learn a little bit more about th- feeling theory, emotional intelligence or that. And what kind of a model could I use? And that worked for me. That kind of became my primary for a while. And then that kind of was inadequate too because I was encountering more people that were uh, aggressive and blaming. And I thought, I need, to f- I need to find a way to engage that differently because when I'm in those pastoral situations, I kind of don't know what to do. I get kind of stuck there. So then I could start to explore, oh, what's theory about that? How do people who work with anger start, how do they assess what the differences are? So, yes, and this is where, you know, in my religious tradition, grace comes in because I don't need to know everything. <laughs> I do not need to know everything. I need to know how to be most present to the person in front of me. I need to be responsible to my profession to, to try to put some rigor around that as I can, gently and in my own pacing, And to have the humility to know that when I come up to the limits of those, I can simply grow. I can just grow. And what will happen over the time of your career is you'll start to gravitate toward the assessment model that is most congruent with who you are, most congruent with the particular setting that you find yourself providing service in, and most kind of congruent with how you see the world really functioning and guess what that's going to evolve over time so my original grief model I don't use as much anymore because it's not doesn't fit me anymore it, it, it fit great in my 30s but it didn't fit me in my 40s <laughs> thank you so kind in
0: your theology you used the word grace and
1: they also said I can grow so is growth in your theology of pastoral care? <laughs> One would
2: hope, right? <laughs> so the, yes. That's um, kind of an assessment of <coughs> a way of thinking yes.
0: about... This profe- yes, exactly. Purpose, so, if, if
2: that's part of your theology, I was curious. Because you use the word
0: grace. Yeah, so
2: uh, my theology, to give you a little Christian theology, <laughs> is that... Um, the energy that is God is behind me. Uh, I mean, is, is in front of me, but with God's back to the future beckoning me forward. Come on, change. Come on, change. You can do it. That's, what, that's how I see God in my Christian theology. Is, Come on, let's go this way. We can do it. And, um, and just to get really technical about it, that theology says that 10 times a second, 10 times a second... I make a perceptual shift. So every second, I've shifted slightly. Every second. I've either moved toward that or slightly away from it. Ten times a second. It's very fertile. So when I'm sitting in a room with a patient and there's silence and I have that urge to say something, my theology says, hey, keep your mouth shut, dude. Ten times a second, this person is changing. You may not be seeing it. They may not be noticing it, but... Ten times a second, they call it in my theology, a concreasing moment is happening. A concreasing moment. So that helps me to be patient and let it happen. But it also tells me that I'm changing ten times a second. And since my professional life is part of my human life, (laughs) I'm changing in this conversation. I'm going to do spiritual care differently because we've had this conversation. I've done it for 35 years, and it's going to be different from this moment on because we're having this conversation. So, yeah, yeah, every, every time we have a patient encounter, it shifts us. It means that I learn a little bit more about humanity, and it clarifies or tells me where I need to grow a little bit more, or it, 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 it uh, confirms my assessment model, or it tells me my assessment model, it didn't work right, quite right in this one, so I need to change a bit. How can I grow? Because, yeah.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Are we at our time? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you need to go somewhere. I and do, you. I had to get, eventually.
0: <laughs> so I, um, wanted you to, I wanted to underscore that because another part of our curriculum down the road is for people here to write their dharmology paper. Ah. Where they do kind of, you will be lifting up within the pantheon of you know, uh, what we call the dharma, yeah. you know. Um, which, are, which are my favorites? Which ones do I think of automatically? You know, yeah. no matter, like the, it's, and it's instantaneous. You know, like vow, dukkha, sangha, you know, like... Um, Mindfulness, you know, like, so they'll be doing that later, so you're yeah. a great illustration of what we mean by what's our core operating system. Yeah. So, and the word you used from the Disciples of Christ was not concretizing, it was constant. Concreasing. It's actually, con-creasing. It's, uh,
2: yeah, a concreasing moment, ten times. Thank Each you. of that one-tenth of a second is a concreasing moment. Gordon Jackson is the theologian that talked about it. A concreasing go moment. It? Yeah. Cool. British. So,
0: uh, since you have been working as a chaplain for 35 years and mm-hmm. minister, I have a question I'd like to ask all of our guests. I'll ask you, I ask you every year. And never like mind it. what you said last year, because <laughs> I, I don't can't remember. remember. <laughs> it's on tape somewhere. If yeah. you really want to know. So, yeah. um, if these guys are in there, let's say first or second year, hmm. uh, what do you wish you'd known in your first or second year that you might offer to them for their first or second year? Now that you're,
2: you know, another way to put this. Wizened, yes.
0: Now that you're wizened, you're you're grayer too. I might know. Grayer,
2: yes. So um, Jennifer knows this. My my particular job has changed quite a bit in the last um, year, and uh, and I've said to several people, I never would have imagined when I started as a chaplain. I started in a psychiatric hospital in Denver. I started as a chaplain there. When I never would have imagined when i started at that hospital i'd be doing what i do now and so um i wish i'd known to enjoy those surprises like not try to imagine what my profession needed to look like but trust that it was going to go in directions that i had absolutely no awareness of or, or could wouldn't have, wouldn't even know, have known the categories to put it enjoy in. Enjoy
0: the ride. To
2: enjoy those surprises, yeah.
0: I never would have guessed either, and I knew you twenty years ago. <laughs> <You did>. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> I would have seen you in a Protestant system I would, for starters. Yes, exactly. And you're not in a Protestant system, so <laughs> exactly. that in itself you know, blows my socks off. Yeah, yeah, it does me too. So enjoy the ride. Yeah. Enjoy the process. Enjoy yeah. the the surprises. Thank you so yeah. much.
2: Yeah. Well, thank you all. Yeah.
0: Oh, one more thing. Um, can we popcorn out to uh, Tom words to describe our experience of him today as a way to say thank you? Just mm-hmm. so you know a little bit what happened here. Okay, cause Cause that it's that hard to tell from over here. Yeah, yeah. yeah It's Popcorn words. Conquiescing. Conquiescing. Um, enlightening. joyful. <laughs> <Enlightening. laughs>
1: inspiring. Joyful. Uh,
0: inspiring, joyful. Uh, Delightful. Uh, Delightful. Okay. Inspiring. Okay. Sorry? Inspiring. Inspiring. Okay. Helpful. Cool. Funny. <laughs> Funny. <laughs> yeah.
1: Wise. Wise.
0: Yes. Energizing. Mm. Okay. Insightful. Mm. Insightful. Mm.
1: Fun. Thank you.
2: Grateful. Fun. Thank you. Appreciative.
4: Okay.
1: Honest? Challenging.
0: Mm. Generous. Thank you. It's very generous of you to come.
2: Oh, thank you. Gosh, that's lovely to hear all those words. You're welcome. What a, that is a very kind way to say thank you. Wow.
0: Yeah, how did, how did you impact us? So now you can take the away. Mm-hmm. But you're not leaving yet because no. Tom's going to stay for lunch. <laughs> and Tom is actually a supervisor in the clinical pastoral education system, or what we, what's called CPE, which is another form of training in chaplaincy. And so during lunch, if you want to learn more about that specifically, you're welcome to sit at that table with Tom. Mm-hmm. And after a little chit-chat, um, he can just give you a little orientation too. CPE is a rigorous uh, clinical training um, that people often engage in either for ordination as a minister or to become a professional chaplain. And um, sometimes, you know, three to four people who take this course will go on to that. Um, So it's just kind of helpful to know about this particular type of training. And if you're not interested in doing that, uh, you might become... You never know what will happen. (laughs) (laughs) Because you know...
2: Yeah, surprises, right? (laughs) Ten times a second. second. (laughs) Okay, great.
0: And so we'll take a lunch break. Um, We're going to have a short lunch break. It's going to be an hour. I'm joking. That's an hour. This lunch break. See you guys in an hour. Good. You might leave sooner than that, though.
2: That's all right. Yeah. You're very welcome. Thank you.